Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we are about ready to get started and we are delighted that y'all are here. Um, I'm Father Brian and we have a guest tonight uh, because Justin is in the Holy Land right now on the St. Philip's pilgrimage. And so some of you may have thought that Chris Walczewski was just the roadie for Justin and me because he brings the sound system and sets up and breaks down. But he actually is a genius musician who is also the organist choir master at St. Philip's despite his tender years. And uh, so he is joining us tonight, uh, which is great because he will have uh, some good things to contribute to our topic about beauty. But just a couple of things before we get started. If you're new, uh, somewhere around the room near you, you should see a sheet like this. And this has a couple of QR codes on it. Uh, you will notice that one of the QR codes that's up at the top uh, will enable you to anonymously submit any question that you might have, uh, which could be about anything. It doesn't have to relate to what we talk about tonight. And then our moderator uh, will help gather those. And then you can upvote the questions you like and we'll hit as many as we can tonight. Um, there also is a QR code to join uh, the mailing list for Theology on Tap, and we would love to have you on that because we're on a somewhat erratic schedule this summer, and as much as you might enjoy coming up here on a Tuesday night and finding Clark, the bartender, is the only guy here, um, and Clark is awesome, so you would probably have an amazing time talking, uh, but, Theology on Tap schedule, uh, if you have the email list, you will be in the know. We also are doing some work on building some more fellowship opportunities for young adults. And if that's something that you are interested in, that is the third QR code down here. So uh, keep that in mind. And then we also have a public service announcement tonight, uh, which is that, as is often the case in Charleston in the summer, um, there is an acute shortage of blood. And St. Philip's is helping the American Red Cross uh, by doing a blood drive on June 27th. If you are young, which all of you are, and healthy, which hopefully all of you are, um, we would encourage you, if you can, um, to participate in that blood drive. Um, you can sign up on the St. Philip's website for that. Or if you can't figure that out, just um, text or email me, and I'll get you hooked up for that. But we would love if you could help with that as well. So tonight, what we're going to do is to uh, address uh, for what I would call beauty redux. Um, we talked about beauty a little over a year ago, but it's one of those parts of um, the Christian faith and the kingdom of God that I think, for whatever reason in our culture, um, is neglected. And one of the things that we talked about is that if you are a regular churchgoer, you could probably count on one hand the number of times you've heard a sermon about beauty. And so what we want to do is just explore a little bit about why uh, we believe that that particular idea, the idea of beauty and the theology of beauty, is so important in your spiritual life. Um, also, let me just say, if you want to stand, you are more than welcome. If you'd be more comfortable sitting, um, we use these staircases here as like bleachers. Um, so that's completely up to you. You can be wherever you want to be. 
So, beauty. What is beauty? Let me actually keep talking and make sure that anyone can hear me because this is like a double job, I guess. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. I'm going to throttle this. Maybe, maybe. Can you hear me in the back? No. No, I don't think you're on. That's right. I'm not on. Let's fix that now. It's a great start, Brian. There we go. But I think mine's on, so that's good. All right, let's start with that. All right. So beauty, well, what is beauty? I think it's important if we're going to have a discussion, probably make sure we're talking about the same things and define our terms. Um, I think it's important that we do that because one of the things we'll talk about is that maybe beauty is one of those things that the secular world might have a different definition than we might. Mm -hmm. So. Merriam-Webster says, beauty, the definite, the quality present in a thing or person that gives intense pleasure or deep satisfaction to the mind, whether arising from sensory manifestations as in shape, color, or sound, a meaningful design or pattern, or something else as a personality in which high spiritual qualities are manifest. So I think that we would take the angle that we would counter the culture because the whole the whole narrative we get is beauty is subjective. Right. And as Christians, I think that we can look as beauty is an attribute of God. Yeah, and I think part of what is interesting is that the the theological concept of beauty and the way that we experience beauty uh, in the world of faith uh, is really rooted in God's revelation of himself. And that goes all the way back in the Bible to the book of Genesis. And when you look in the book of Genesis, uh, at the very beginning in chapter 1, what you see is that the earth was without form and void. And one of the things sometimes theologians will talk about is that there was, there was not order at the beginning of creation. But God, as he progressively created more and more, um, there was more and more order. There's day and night. Um, there is male and female, there are plants and animals, there's sea and land. And the order in the theological concept of beauty is really important. And that's part of the idea about the objectivity of beauty, that there are things that are objectively beautiful. And that is an idea that most of human uh, culture across ages, cultures, religions, would have agreed with. And that idea has only started coming under attack probably um, seriously in the last century. But that whole idea of the connection between order and beauty and the, the reason that beauty is important and how you live your day-to-day -day life is part of what we want to try to unpack tonight. Yeah, it's interesting you start off with the difference between um, order and chaos, and I think it's it's very interesting at this time. I'm not I'm I'm, I'm an age. I'm not gonna say that. You can guess. You'll probably be wrong. I'm way younger than that. Um, <laughs> but this is a time when we have um, social media influencers and, and thought leaders online who I think maybe largely are doing a lot of good. You know, that are trying to bring awareness to I think overall meaning. And so from downstream from that, we have ideas such as well, what is order and what is chaos? How do I fit into you know, the difference between the two? But it's interesting from our Christian perspective is that that's not 
irrelevant to us. I mean, the, the very opening words of scripture in Genesis chapter one is the creation, is that there was nothing, there is something. Day two, there was nothing, there is something. And it's just, the, the story of God is reflecting the entire time out of from nothing, from chaos, comes God's order. And so he sort of sets this up for us. And so how might, I think beauty is reflective of that because, well, one of the characteristics of God is order, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and I would say that one of the things about that is that when you read the creation narratives, you see that each time that God brings more order out of chaos, he says, it was good. And then when he creates man, he says, it was very good. And so this idea of creating something out of nothing is part of the goodness of God. And part of what is um, the framework for our discussion tonight is thinking about something that we don't talk about very much if you are in the Christian faith. If you're not in the Christian faith, um, this is probably something that's not really much on your radar, but it's an old term called the transcendentals. And the transcendentals are these three words, truth, goodness, and beauty. And the idea is that all of those, and the, the roots of this in the ancient Christian faith, are that all of those are attributes of God. And because we are made in God's image, we also, despite sin, we still have um, a shadow of those attributes. And the more that we live into those attributes, the more we are like God. And the uh, classical theologians like Thomas Aquinas would tell you that the farther up um, you go with truth or beauty or goodness, that those things will converge, and they will converge um, in the kingdom of heaven because they're all related to each other, that truth and goodness and beauty are all related. But you might have noticed in the the tagline for tonight, um, the idea of, will beauty save the world? And where that comes from is a quotation from Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, who I will not go off about this. Um, I love Dostoevsky. If you haven't ever read any Dostoevsky, do yourself a favor and read it. If it doesn't make sense, call me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, But Dostoevsky obviously was a Russian author. And he was quoted by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, how many of y'all know who Alexander Solzhenitsyn is? It's okay if you don't. Don't be embarrassed. All right. It's because y'all are so young. Y'all should learn about him. Uh, he was a Soviet dissident who was sentenced to years and years and years in the Gulag archipelago um, in this horrible prison and eventually was released and won the Nobel Prize for Peace. And he gave a brilliant address when he won that award saying, quoting from Dostoevsky, beauty may save the world. And he was talking about that in the Soviet Union, the idea of truth was completely under attack and that it was redefined in terms of whatever the state tells you is truth. And then he went on to say goodness was redefined by the state as well, that traditional morality was set aside and the state would say this is what's good But he said, beauty is something that is immutable. It's unchangeable. And it it causes a visceral response in you. And the government and the state or whatever philosophy can't control that. The emotions that you feel when you see a beautiful sunset or when you listen to a beautiful piece of music or you see a beautiful building or garden, those things can't be controlled by anyone. 
So he said, in that sense, beauty may be the thing that saves the world, because when we see beauty, we think, why should this be? We were talking about um, the transcendentals, which, <clears throat> does anyone know what a transcendental is? We, we asked that question, what is a transcendental? Anyone heard that before? This is great star, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I think these are high lofty things. And, and Brian said that there are the three things that we acknowledge as Christians to be transcendental is the truth, goodness, and beauty. And, this really starts with the Greek philosophers developing this idea. And in our Christian context, it really is developed further into our understanding in the Middle Ages with Thomas Aquinas and other great minds. I mean, I don't think you take a philosophy class and not hear the words of Thomas Aquinas, um, really one of the great minds of the West of all time. Uh, but th these are like just such transcendent ideas that are just so hard to grasp. We just had. If you, if you attend St. Philip's or a liturgical church, we just had Trinity Sunday. And um, did you have to preach that? No. Oh, thank the Lord. Yes. That's a hard one. I, th I think, you know, thinking about transcendentals and just the meat of the topic and just such a high lofty, you might even want to think that well, this is kind of abstract, um, but maybe not. The, these are just like under that, They're just such big, important topics. What is truth? What is beauty? What is goodness? I think that we as Christians can really unpack those things because we have we're the greatest tool of all to do this, which is the Bible. And we have the Gospels, and Jesus himself sort of unpacks these things. But I just don't want to leave the point of us talking about this high lofty, what's a transcendental. It, it's actually meaningful for us overall because it's one of those things that it transcends. A transcendental is, where did I put my definition, Brian? Well, I'll throw one out there while yeah, you let's do that. So let's a, do that. Transcendental it is was something really that transcends time, it transcends place, it transcends culture. It is something that is an absolute uh, verity, if you will. Something that across time, whether you were a Greek philosopher in the 5th century BC or a Christian mystic um, in the Middle Ages or a Sufi Muslim um, in the 15th century, these things, truth, goodness, and beauty, would be things that you could discern because they're part of the way that God has wired the world. That's what it was. It sums all of that up because you mentioned a bunch of different things and groups that maybe have some things in common, but maybe not Christians, obviously. But it exceeds all of that, yeah. and it's just an observable truth. What is truth? Interesting question. Yes, I think that's Pilate asked that. Although this is beauty, Jesus. maybe we don't need to go there. Yeah, so we won't, we, won't, we won't really go there. But Mr. Pilate, um, beauty. Uh, one of the reasons that I think that is so important is that uh, we live in an age where we are consumed by media and technology. You may think that you are consuming media and technology, but I would suggest that you actually are consumed by media and technology in the same way that I am a lot of the time, to my own chagrin. But until uh, probably the middle of the 19th century, one of the things that was true for most human beings is that they spent long portions of each day outside. And a lot of theologians, if you go back to the early church, talk about there being three testaments. Now, if you're a good church-going person, uh, you will know that the two testaments are what? The New Testament and the Old Testament. Yes, very good. Go to the front of the class. Uh, you get the gold star. Um, 
So the New Testament and the Old Testament, but a lot of the church fathers said the Third Testament, is, which sounds like Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code or some <laughs> conspiracy theory, the Third Testament actually is the creation, the beauty that surrounds us and the creation that should make us be fired with a sense of wonder about where did this come from. And for those of you who live in Charleston and who go out to the beach, you know that when you walk along the beach and you hear those waves lapping on the shore and you hear the cry of the seagulls and you see the light bouncing and rippling on the water, that is something that is astoundingly beautiful and it moves your soul in some way that you can't explain or describe. But the problem is that most of us in our day-to-day -day life spend most of our time here. And so we are looking down and we are tapping on this device and we are using that to frame our reality. But really, until um, the middle to late 19th century, most people were not using that to frame their reality. And I just want to read a little. That's me. Oh, sorry. Um, I want to read this little quotation because it was really striking to me. Uh, Y'all probably had to study uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson when you were in school. Remember Ralph Waldo Emerson? I've always wanted to know somebody named Waldo. He's so cool. <laughs> Uh, but Ralph Waldo Emerson was not a Christian. He was somebody that had a lot of sort of interesting philosophical ideas. But listen to what he said. He said, if the stars should appear one night in a thousand years, how men would believe and adore and preserve for many generations the remembrance of the city of God which had been shown to them. But every night come out these envoys of beauty and light the universe with their admonishing smile. And it used to be that when you went out at night, you couldn't help but see the starry heavens. You couldn't help but see the planets. And like right now we have some really brilliantly bright planets up there if you've gone out to look at the night sky. And it causes you to wonder, where did this come from? How do we fit under the vault of this heaven? But the problem for so many of us now is we're inside watching Netflix. We don't know that the stars came out. We have no idea. And when we do try to look at them, there's so much light pollution that we don't notice. But part of the, the point of Emerson's quotation is that we have uh, become numb. We have become immune to the beauty that God has put out there that's designed to make us ask questions and wonder and ultimately draw us to him. And one of the things we'll get to hopefully later in this conversation is that part of what you want to do is incorporate more things into your life that will fire that sense of wonder because that is something that will strengthen you spiritually, emotionally, and in every other way. I have one question for you. Yes. Have you ever found Waldo? <laughs> I've wanted to, but not so much. I'll take that as a no. And I must say that I do, I do completely acknowledge my guilt and all of that as a, as a serial introvert. Um, whenever I get tired emotionally, I'm, I'm doing this. 
because I don't want to deal with it. Right. But I think you're talking about realizing there's a cockroach right there. <laughs> talking about no. There we go. We're all lost now. Uh, talking about the beauty of God's creation is inherent in the things He has created. Um, I mean, I think that's kind of obvious. You know, you don't have to be a Christian to realize this is beautiful. You know, we can look at a, a painting of a landscape by a, a, a master and you know, sort of meditate on that and realize, okay, this is beautiful. But for us Christians, there, I think there's a specific application. And let me just draw you from the Bible here. Psalm 19, one of my favorite psalms, just opens with this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's all about bringing him glory. Um, and we could further unpack that beyond just the natural world, but it is beautiful. And I think that comes down to us at some level, but not to get into that. Brian, I think we have some discussion to, uh, beyond getting out there and out of ourselves in the midst of our busy world in a relatively modest city of Charleston that has a lot of things going on. Um, as Christians worshiping in the church, what sort of opportunities do we have devotionally to live into this understanding of beauty as an attribute of God? Like what? Yeah. And maybe as Anglican Christians, what specifically? Yeah, that's a, that that's a great question. So I think there are a couple of things about that. One is that um, Anglicanism, and it's it's perfectly okay if you're not Anglican. Let me just say that right off the bat. All are welcome here. We're delighted you're here, regardless of where you're coming from. We'll work um, on you, though. But much. <laughs> one, one of the things that is um, interesting in the Anglican understanding of Christianity and worship is that we want to engage all of your senses. We want to engage sight. We want to engage hearing. We want to engage smell. We want to engage taste. Uh, we want to engage touch. All of those things. And so if you go to a communion service at St. Phil's, all of those um, will happen to you because we have the beauty of the church building, we have the, the sound of the music, uh, we have the taste of the wine and the bread and the communion elements, the touch of someone's hand when you're passing the peace and when you're receiving communion. Um, all of those kinds of things are very much part and parcel of the Anglican experience. But the other thing that's part of our heritage that we don't do so much anymore is what's called the daily office. And the daily office is an old form of worship that's rooted all the way back in temple worship in the Old Testament. And in it, um, there are certain prayers and certain things that you do at different times of day to cause you to break your routine and then go and actually focus on God. Worship involves focusing on God and not on yourself. We live in perhaps the most introspective, um, narcissistic culture that has ever been on the face of the earth. And it's really good for us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to focus on God. And one of the services that I love that I was just talking with some friends about last night is Evensong. And Evensong, uh, if you go to England, in every cathedral and all the colleges of Oxford, Evensong is a service that's done late in the afternoon, every day of the week, and they sing exactly the same two pieces, the Magnificat and the Nunc Dimittis, uh, which is Mary's song when she learns she is going to be the mother of Jesus, and Simeon's song when he sees the baby Jesus in the temple. And both of those are songs that are about the wonder that God chose 
to take on flesh and enter into this world. And so when you are worshiping in that way every day of the week, it begins to build into you a sense of wonder and awe about who God is. But when we spend all of our time not doing that, uh, we, we shortchange ourselves and we're not able to, to enter in to the sense of wonder in the same way. So we've been talking a lot about order, maybe a little bit about chaos, and not to we're going to focus on order, but that's, that's also important because God has something to say about chaos. Um, but So the, the daily offices, we talked about Evensong and these two songs that get sung, you know, if you're faithful, you, you sing or say these, these canticles, these passages of scripture every day. One of them is the Song of Mary, which is the Annunciation, the angel appearing to her, giving her the news, oh, by the way, the Savior of mankind is coming through your womb. Um, and then secondly is the Song of Simeon, who's, and you talk about the senses, we're talking about sight here. This, this man was promised that he would not pass before he saw the salvation of the world before his eyes. And if you've ever been to St. Philip's, I think this is a really cool thing. We have a painting over the west door as you walk in the church of that setting. And there's this old man in, in Hebrew robes as, a, as a, a, a scholarly learned man. And some of the faces may be familiar to you. There are characters in our church life. Um, but we, we have that marked specifically as though this is this incarnational moment where we're going to see the Savior, the object of our worship at this time, the object of beauty, the attribute of God. God is beauty. And so those things get summed up every day in this rhythm, this order of the daily office of evening prayer. But we didn't talk about morning prayer. And I think St. Philip's is a cool place because we offer these public opportunities to pray these offices with, with some frequency. And we do even song, you know, once a month at least. But we also do this thing called morning prayer. And some people have the opinion where this is this old stodgy, dusty service, but it really is intended for the Christian to pray. It's, a, it's an order of prayer every day because we fall into these rhythms of prayer, and these aren't just you know, random happenstance rhythms. These, these go back to, as Brian said, temple worship, but in our context, they go back specifically to before the English Reformation, to the monastic tradition from the apostles. And so these prayers that we pray just aren't happenstance. They're rich in tradition, and they've formed the, the deposit of faith that we have to this day. Morning prayer is cool because it stands apart from evening prayer, which is all about the incarnation, but it, it has a different focus because what we sing, I think, is pretty awesome that these hymns that we sing, and you might not realize this, but they're ancient. Mm -hmm. They're the Psalms, and that's cool because if you're going to be faithful about this, we would go through the entire Psalter, which if you've never prayed the Psalter, I really encourage that. The Psalter is awesome. 150 of them, if you do three a day, Maybe not three a day. It's three in each office. Some of them aren't long. 119 is very long. So make a day of that. Um, but you get through the entire Psalter in a month, and there is nothing, I can tell you, there is nothing more life-giving than praying the Psalms because they are the ultimate expression of you as a person in the Christian faith. And, and they're it's just a, it's, awesome. And it's a great way to just jump into the stream of what has nurtured the devotional life of generations and generations of Christians. But another thing with this whole idea of beauty is the fact that God has hardwired order 
into his creation. And one of the things that I uh, would encourage you to do if you've never learned about them is to go and study about the Fibonacci numbers and the golden ratio. And if that sounds like Dan Brown, um, sorry, but it is, it is something that is quite remarkable. So Fibonacci numbers are numbers where if you take the sequence 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, that each of those numbers is the sum of the two numbers before it. And if you divide, if you add any two numbers in that sequence together and divide them in half, it comes out to 1.618. And the crazy thing about these numbers is that they are all over creation. So if you look at the double helix of DNA, um, it is a Fibonacci sequence. If you look at the arrangement of petals on a sunflower, it is a Fibonacci sequence. If you look at the Nautilus shell, which I think... Ooh, I got a visual. You have a visual. I got a visual. The Nautilus shell is a depiction of the Fibonacci sequence. If you look at the... Um, really all sorts of different things. If you look at the golden ratio, which is the 1.618 derived from the Fibonacci numbers, that is the root of all classical architectural beauty, whether it is the Taj Mahal or Notre Dame Cathedral or anything like that. All of those buildings are built with this golden ratio. And most of downtown Charleston, particularly the 18th and early 19th century part, all of it is built with that ratio. Market Hall, which is a copy of the temple in Nîmes that the Romans built, um, and the Parthenon are both built with this golden ratio. Many of you are familiar with Leonardo da Vinci's picture of the symmetry of the human body, where he's got the guy with his arms out and there's like the compass and all of that. That also is the golden ratio in Fibonacci sequence. It defies imagination to believe that all of that happened by accident out of the primal goo from DNA right through plants and sea life and architecture. Um, that order, God has built that all through the universe. And the only reason that we can have science is because God has built an orderly universe full of beauty where we can discover these things. They're discoverable because there's order. If it was all chaos, there would be no way to discover or to discern laws. So we are about to run out of time, so we should probably talk about I want to make one point for asking yes. questions, though. And, well, and, that we, and then before that, we're going to talk about practices to try to increase beauty. I just want to know, is anyone surprised that Brian was the Pimati sequence? Anyone? Nope, nobody at all. Nobody <laughs> at all. But why is it that people come to Charleston? If you look out on the sidewalk here, it's just full of tourists. And is there a connection, I think, of the human yearning for beauty? I mean, it's, it's hardwired into us. The reason why people come here to spend their time to, to, to be enriched. Um, let's not address bachelorette parties. That's a different thing. But wh why, are they, why are they coming here and not, say, Oklahoma City? There's, there's a reason for this. Is because this architecture speaks to our soul. Whether we're cognizant of it or not, it reflects a greater truth. It's a beauty that, I mean, I live here. I appreciate it. Yeah. So a couple of ideas of practices to try to incorporate more beauty in your life. Uh, one thing that this is very simple, but spend some time outdoors every day besides walking from your house to your car. Um, 
So I, one of the things I started doing a couple of years ago is having my prayer time in the morning outdoors where you can feel the breeze, you can see what the weather is doing, you can hear the birds, all of that. Um, intentionally spending time in nature is huge. Um, occasionally going out somewhere where you can really see the night sky, whether that's doing a beach walk when there's a new moon or something like that, can be really good. Um, also, reading literature like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, um, that uh, beauty is almost a character in that story. Um, Tolkien is a deep believer in the power of beauty, as is C.S. Lewis. So reading things that are beautiful is important. Poetry is another great way, particularly if you're reading the right poets, um, Jared Manley Hopkins, George Herbert, um, any of those kinds of people are going to help open the door um, for beauty in your life. And one of the things that I believe that you will find also is if you listen to beautiful music, if you try to learn more about great classical art, you will find that you are blessed by that. But particularly by being out in God's creation, it's not an accident that in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about anxiety, um, which is arguably the besetting sin of our culture. Um, how many of y'all have worried in the past week? Anyone not raising your hand is lying. Um, so Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount um, that part of the antidote to worry and anxiety is consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air, and consider the, the Greek for that is a big hefty word that means to really think about, to observe, to enter into their world. And Jesus is telling us that part of the way to deal with anxiety is to look at the beauty and the order of God's creation. So with that, we should probably move to some questions. Amen. So if y'all would like to uh, look at the questions that are out there and then upvote the ones that are interesting, John Self has kindly uh, agreed to be pressed into service as our moderator. So he will start hold, hold firing the these off soon. It might be off. Let's I take just, a couple seconds. Turn it off. Uh, I'll try. Just hold it in again. It should light up. Do a little tap. I hate working two jobs. <laughs> it was working. And just for those of you who are new, the questions that we don't get to because we never get to all of them go into our famous question bowl, which is a big fish bowl, and we print them all out and fold them up and we just randomly draw them. And about every six times we have question bowl night, uh, which is really fun. So. and get started with the first one. Uh, it's easy to compare someone else's life as more beautiful as more beautiful life than mine. How should I combat beauty? Or coveting beauty, rather. Sorry. How should I combat what? Let me rephrase, or let me 
It's easy to compare someone else's life as more beautiful life than mine. How should I combat coveting beauty? Okay, so how should I combat coveting beauty when I compare my life to someone else's and their life seems more beautiful? Um, that's a great question, and that is, uh, I think, one of the questions of the hour with social media and Instagram influencers where people are curating everything that goes out there. You think that they always are perfectly dressed, and their hair always looks perfect, and their children are clean and <laughs> behaving, and they have jobs that pay them six-figure salaries but have no stress and allow them to go on sailing trips around the world. Um, so when you look at that, you're like, gosh, I covet that. Um, and that I think that's a perfectly normal sort of response, but I think that the reality and part of the way that you deal with that is to realize that that is a mirage, um, that that's not reality, that they're not showing you the picture of when their car broke down and they had to um, stand by the side of the road and got all hot and sweaty and the jack didn't work and then they had to go to the hospital after they injured their finger trying to change the tire. People don't post about that sort of thing on social media. So I think one of the things that uh, can help as an antidote to that is to work on cultivating gratitude, to look at the ways that God has blessed you and the things that you are thankful for, and to be glad that God has made you to be the person that you are and not someone else. And the more that you lean into gratitude for what God has given you, you will find that there is enormous beauty in the life that you are leading if you only will look for it. Um, part of the problem is that we are conditioned by all this flood of media coming at us to think that beauty is only in certain things and in certain types of lifestyles. But the fact of the matter is there can be beauty in something as simple as getting up and having um, hot water in your sink in the morning. Um, we just need to learn to reframe our understanding about those things and to cultivate gratitude. Yes and amen. <laughs> I, I just want to echo the social media part of that, which pretty much drives our, our MO, I guess, is, is you know, 20s, 30s in this room. Um, that's fake. It, it, it is. It's a curated experience of what you're able to see, a window in a, into other people's lives. And so a reflection of beauty for the application, I think, is just you have to realize, so sort of how we opened here, is that beauty is objective. And it's only objective because it's an attribute of God. And so, uh, in, you know, what was, the, what, would have, what was the end of the question? How to covet? Covet? Yes. Maybe? Yeah, well, I mean, let's have some commandments. The, the commandments here is that shall not covet. But um, it, I think the scriptures are a, a wonderful tool uh, devotionally to sort of wrap your mind in, in understanding these things is that, that maybe it's vanity and not, not beauty. Um, so the scriptures, I think, are key. And realizing is, is what I think actually beauty and what I'm yearning after or coveting beauty or is it something else? And knowing that beauty is objective and it flows downstream from God. Yeah. And the other thing I would add to that is there's that wonderful line from St. Paul when he says, I've learned the secret of being content in every circumstance, whether in plenty or in want. And that learning to be content um, that can be a lifelong process, but that is something that is important because it can be learned.
So that's great. sanctification right there. Yes. Oh boy. Great question. Should Christians celebrate Pride Month? Should Christians celebrate Pride Month? That is a great question also. So I would say that gets you caught in the tension between two things. One is to love your neighbor as yourself, and the other is to understand the biblical sexual ethic, which is really very clear in scripture that um, sexual activity is reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. So in that sense, I think it would be difficult for a Christian to celebrate Pride Month. Um, The flip side of that is I think that it is important that we love our friends who who would define themselves as gay. Um, I think that it is uh, too easy sometimes to think that we need to just shun people or we can't be in relationship with people um, who have a different understanding of sexual ethics than we do. And I think that the only way that those people um, who experience same-sex attraction um, can be led to the beauty of the gospel is by Christians loving them. And so um, would I go to the pride parade? No, I would not do that. Um, Would I go to dinner with my friend who is gay and living that lifestyle? Um, Absolutely, I would. Um, But I think that it's the difference between celebrating a movement and being loving to an individual. The only thing I have to add to that is wonderful, wonderful answer, Brian. Yes and amen. Um, Is that, you know, this is the reality of the world in which we live in 2023 is that these things are here. I imagine there's probably a a spectrum of understanding of that in this room even. Um, But what Brian said is that if you're going to hold the line of the church's teaching on such matters, which is authoritative, um, it, it actually presents you an opportunity of Christian witness. And um, what, what better opportunity for someone to, to realize that you're holding fast to the Christian faith and ask you about that, and you tell them about Jesus Christ. And uh, I can't think of any more loving response than to introduce them to our Lord and Savior. Yeah, and I think being relationally invested in them and not... Um somehow seeing that a choice to pursue that lifestyle is somehow worse than other things that people struggle with. Um, We are all sinners. We are all beggars looking for bread at the foot of the cross. And so the more that we can approach with humility and love, that's all to the good. But I would also say, um, back when you look in the, the medieval understanding of theology and the seven deadly sins, pride which is obviously not what Pride Month is, but the whole idea of pride, of glorying in yourself, is presented as the most pernicious and destructive of the sins. So that um, is not something that we'd want to embrace. Does temptation come to us under the guise of beauty, or does the devil tempt us with true beauty? Is this what happened with Odysseus and the Sirens? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Next question. Uh, <laughs> so, um, all you, Brian. Satan, Satan most definitely tempts us uh, through beauty 
And uh, scripture tells us that Satan is the great deceiver and the father of lies, um, that he presents himself as an angel of light. And sometimes he tempts us through false beauty, but he also will tempt us through true beauty and then trying to twist the application of it. And that really is the whole theme of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, which I would really commend if you've never read it. Um, it is a fantastic book. Uh, but uh, those of you who were at St. Philip's on Sunday when I was preaching, I was talking about the story of Alice Cooper, um, who most of y'all will know from School's Out for Summer. Um, yeah, so Alice Cooper, uh, that was back when I was in college when that came out, which makes me feel really, really, really old. I'm glad we have that um, but, oh Lord, I forgot about that. Uh, so Alice Cooper, um, what you may not know is that he was uh, leading a really wild, very hedonistic, drug-addicted life and had a profound encounter with Jesus Christ in 1984 and converted to the Christian faith. And he said, in, a, in an interview after that, he said, I know all about heaven and hell. And he said, one of the things I've learned is that I used to think Satan was a little guy with horns and a twisty tail. But what I've learned is that Satan is the best looking guy in the room who's got on really good looking clothes, who's got a great idea that I need to be invested in. And that is when you need to really watch out. And so I think that Satan can use anything um, to his advantage. And we, as Christians, if you're a believer in Jesus, um, you need to be on your guard and be praying about that. So I'm not sure if this is going to answer the question, but it gets at my OCD of preparing all this material, Brian, that we didn't get to, because we have so much to say about this topic. And we could probably have another five episodes about we could. But th there's a hierarchy here, because God is creator. And so, like as we said earlier, that beauty is an attribute of God. God is what is beautiful, and his creation is beautiful. Satan can't create anything. And so we have to understand that if something appears beautiful to us that is not of God, it's just a warped understanding of that to yeah. ourselves. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's this great part in the Screwtape letters where um, Screwtape, who's this demon who is trying to tempt the Christian, says... Uh, that he's so frustrated because he says, God says that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Blah. And then he says, all of our research has never enabled us to create even one pleasure. All we can do is to take the pleasures that God created and encourage people to use them in ways that are contrary to what God has said. So yeah, exactly. What is the difference in Christian beauty versus worldly beauty? So Christian ver versus worldly beauty, um, there are a lot of different levels that that can operate on. Um, I think in the, in the abstract sort of theological broad sense of beauty, the Christian sense of beauty would be uh, defined by that which is ordered, that which points you to God, that which is... Um, demonstrative of God's creative power and that which is derivative of what we know about God. And one of the interesting things in our culture right now is the worst thing you can say about art or literature or music is that it's derivative. That makes it sound like it's not original. Um, we want it to be bold or innovative or 
boundary breaking or something like that. But actually, in the Christian understanding, the more that something echoes the beauty of creation, the more um, it is actually beautiful. And this, this is the thing that C.S. Lewis talks about in The Abolition of Man, which is kind of a heady essay that he wrote, but something that's really important that I would commend to you. Um, the other aspect of beauty about um, the way our culture thinks about beauty is very often the physical beauty of a human being. And I would say there, again, there's a very different understanding. The um, cultural definition would be the, uh, the L'Oreal ad. Um, and some of y'all may have seen, there was a great video that came out from Dove Soap Company, believe it or not, um, probably about 10 years ago, about women who are objectified and put on billboards and ads for makeup. And it takes this picture of this woman and then they digitize it and they stretch certain things and compact certain things and then add this thing and that thing to make her into the idea of what we think is beautiful. Whereas the scriptures tell us that beauty for women and for men, the beauty of your heart is what is important, that the outward beauty, the physical beauty is not the thing that matters because God looks on the heart. I really don't think I have anything to add to that, Brian other than um, beauty reflects the intrinsic nature of God. And even if it is outward beauty, and that might be objective, that it's just, it's it's furthering our reflection of him. Yes. And um, yeah, that's all I'm gonna say. Not, not gonna get in the rabbit hole. Not something we've done on our own. Yes. Yes. Yep. These are great questions, thank you. Keep them coming. Is there beauty in disorder? Oof. So is there beauty in disorder? Yes and no. Um, I think sometimes there can be beauty in disorder when the disorder has been done intentionally to draw your attention to something. And so I would use an example for that. Some of the uh, things that have been done in some of the Holocaust museums around the world uh, where there is something that is clearly broken on purpose uh, and it's disarrayed on purpose and so one of the most moving exhibits in one of the holocaust museums is this just huge enormous disordered pile of shoes and shoes of people who were killed by the nazis in the holocaust and there is a tragic beauty that is in the midst of that disorder. I would also say there is beauty in the disorder of paintings of artists like Marc Chagall, um, where Chagall will take the narrative of the main picture that's in the center, and then he'll break out little parts of it and paint little small paintings in the corners, which are slightly disordered, but it's designed to get you to think more about what the subject of the painting is. So I think there can be beauty in disorder. Um, the flip side of that is that I think so much of that depends on the intentionality of the artist and what he's trying to accomplish. I think that just painting disarray for the sake of painting disarray, um, in my mind, doesn't really meet the criteria for beauty. I think we could easily talk about modern music in uh, this sense, yes. but I don't want to do that because I just 
Don't we're gonna have to that's, do a whole thing. Yeah, on that's music. A, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Okay. We have sheets of. I don't know that anybody really wants to hear about to. that because that's that's just. But that doesn't matter because yes. we want to talk about it. <laughs> yes, that's true. But I think here's the easy answer the way out. I think probably the summation of what it is that we do here is that I think there is beauty in disorder because God acted, and the only reason that we have the salvation narrative of the world of God's world is because He had to bring order out of chaos as a result of a fall. And so basically is it personified in the Christ. God's story coming among us in the flesh and in the incarnation to bring order to disorder, to redeem us from the fall, from our sinfulness, and that there's beauty in that because, as we discussed earlier, the beauty is the attribute of God, and he redeemed us by his ultimate sacrifice. And so I think the pinnacle of beauty is Jesus. And he came in the midst of disorder to bring order to his people. That's the easy answer, but it's true. As a follow-up to, should we as a Christian celebrate Pride Month, what if the LGBT person shoots back, you don't love me if you don't agree with LGBT community? Yes. Yeah, so you don't love me if you don't agree with what I believe about this. Um, and I would say that's a problem regardless of whether it's LGBT or politics or whatever it might be. And I think that is, um, particularly if this is somebody that you have really um, a relationship where you've earned the right to be heard, um, that is a question that is really worth a serious conversation. Because one of the things that I would say has gone wrong um, in our discourse with each other and our understanding of every person that we encounter is someone who's made in the image of God with dignity and purpose and value is that we have come to this place somehow, and y'all are young, so you don't maybe see this exactly the same way I do, but I remember very much growing up in the civil rights era with Martin Luther King Jr. being on the TV and preaching a lot of the really great sermons that he preached. And one of the things that he talked a lot about was this idea of being able to love people even though you might disagree with what their stand was on something and understanding that we needed to be working toward understanding and bridging those chasms. And this idea that if, I, if you disagree with me about something, that you can't love me, that is a radically innovative new idea in the history of the human race. And um, in some ways, it is, um, it's a more acceptable side of that ugly word prejudice, where prejudice basically means that you judge a whole group of people without really knowing them as individuals based on your perceptions about them. And it's very easy um, to get on that slippery slope of saying, if you don't agree with me about this, then you can't love me. And there's a real difference between loving someone, being committed to them, and still disagreeing profoundly about certain beliefs that they may hold. And this is something that you see very much in the scriptural definition of love. Um, in Romans 12, St. Paul talks about the idea that love must be sincere. That means genuine, full-hearted. But at the same time, he says, in that type of love, that you hate what is evil, 
and you cling to what is good, which is sometimes expressed as don't like the sin, but love the sinner. And you see that with Jesus. Jesus never compromised his integrity, but he also was not afraid to say that certain things are sin. So I'm not actually going to answer the question, but I want to tail off of what Brian said. I think it's super important that as a Christian, it, you, it's, it's very difficult to speak truth to the world in a vacuum. And how important it is to form relationships with people who may not understand your set of ethics as a Christian, but in order to build trust and friendship and all those things requisite to even have a conversation like that. Because I think that's really the, the foundation in which to build mm-hmm. a trusting conversation about such things. Because you're, you're talking almost on an ontological level, on some levels. So I think it's important as a Christian, really, to, to echo about the, the idea of love. Is that my neighbor, my friend, um, I, I love them enough to build trust in order to, whenever they, they ask me the hard questions, they know I'm a Christian. They know I disagree with that sort of thing. And when that question finally comes, it has to be understood from a level of trust and truth. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the great things that um, many people, you know, there was great mourning in our country when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And one of the things that was so interesting to people and shocking to them was that she and Justice Scalia were like best friends. And they could not have been more opposite in their views on the Supreme Court and their views on the law, but they had figured out how to love each other and have a real friendship despite that. So I think that is something that's a good challenge for all of us to learn to love people, even though we may not agree about everything. All right, we are out of time. Um, Thank y'all so much for being here. Please hang out, have another drink, visit. We're delighted that you're here. And our next one of these is, do you know? Two weeks. Two weeks, all right. And Justin, God willing, will be back from Israel. And uh, he will show you his picture of him sitting on a camel, which is quite amusing. So something to look forward to. Thanks for coming. God bless you all.